This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Hello, I'm Wayne Scott and welcome to episode three of the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast, keeping Jaguar fans in touch worldwide. This week we go behind the scenes with one of the world's most trusted Jaguar parts suppliers, SNG Barrett. We hear from a member on what he's been working on to raise money for the NHS. Richard West shares the moment he first met Tom Walkinshaw. And Tom Robinson from Swallow's Independent Jaguar answers all your technical questions. JECpodcast.com First though, hope you're keeping safe and well as I talk to you just before what would normally have been the season opener, the weekend of the FBHVC National Drive It Day for historic vehicles would have been this coming Sunday, the 26th of April. But of course, due to the coronavirus pandemic, instead, the FBHVC have invited us, the Jaguar community, to get involved in a nationwide social media campaign to spread positivity around the historic vehicle community during this difficult time. And we can do this by sharing our pictures of past Drive It Day events using the hashtag Drive It Day Memories. If you don't have access to social media, that's okay as well because the FBHVC have created a website at www.driveitday.co.uk where owners and organisations and clubs like us can easily upload their photos to share with the national effort to raise awareness around our important freedoms to use our transport heritage on the road and also to flood social media with some positivity and classic cars, which is good for us all right now during this time. So all you have to do is visit www.driveitday.co.uk and click the upload button there and follow all the steps. And they've opened this, the FBHVC, for a whole month until May the 26th, 2020, to give everyone the opportunity to contribute to and view everyone else's images of past Drive It days. And don't forget, of course, if you are a social media user, let's share all of our memories. Hashtag Drive It Day memories. Pull out those pictures of old Drive It days of uh, previous years and let's get sharing them and make sure that the Jaguars are well represented amongst those Drive It Day memories. The Jaguar Enthusiast Club, by the way, one of the biggest contributors and one of the biggest clubs in the Federation of British Historic Vehicle Clubs. And uh, they do really crucial work for us to make sure that the future of the historic vehicle movement is safe. Next on the JC podcast, though, more positivity as we hear from a club member who's been doing something rather marvellous to raise money for the efforts against coronavirus from the depths of his own self-isolation. Welcome along to the podcast, Stuart Dixon. Hello. Now, Stuart's well known for his fundraising activities for the Bluebell Wood Children's Hospice, and he raises money by wrapping Jaguars from his own collection with eye-catching designs and offering people at various shows up and down the country the opportunity to have their name sign written on the car. Well, he's taken that idea a stage further and used a similar thing to raise money now for the NHS. So, Stuart, tell us about the car that you've wrapped this time. Uh, well, this is a car, five-litre portfolio xk i bought it this year in january and uh, i've hardly used it i've had it wrapped in a very unusual wrap multicolored, with a, a large jaguar's head on the side of the car and uh, i was hoping to raise a lot of money for bluebell this year but uh, being as i can't 
I thought I wonder if I can raise any for the NHS. Well, of course, you, like so many of us, have struggled because of the lack of events all of a sudden that we see for the summer ahead. This is your way, really, of using the internet via this podcast and the news pages at jc.org.uk to draw attention to, as you say, this new NHS car. Explain uh, exactly the design that you've gone for then and uh, what inspired you to do this in the first place? I thought... There must be something I can do. As people go past me home, uh, because I've got two or three of me uh, jags in me drive, people stop and look at them. As you know, they're very unusual. And I thought, well, can I put an NHS? Because I noticed some people put NHS on the gates and things. And uh, I dug out some stickers that uh, I used on my first car. And I've made, just made a bit of a design on, on the side windows and on the back window. NHS, it's not 100% perfect, but it took me four and a half hours to do it. And I don't know how many hundred stickers there is on it. And every sticker's got the NHS stuck to it. Well, if you want to go and have a look at the car, we've posted pictures of this on the news pages at jec.org.uk. Uh, you can also see a picture of the car alongside the player for this podcast as well. And of course, the news story will be in Friday Spotlight. And alongside those pictures, there will be a link to a Just Giving page. Just simply click the link and anything that you can give to really recognise Stuart's efforts and donate to the NHS, please do give via that link on there. You have form in doing things like this. Tell us a little bit about what you do for Bluebell Wood Children's Hospice under normal circumstances. I take as many of my cars as I can uh, to shows. I they come all over the country from Cheshire to, to London and... Uh, let people write the name on the car on a sticker and i also put businesses on and uh, in less than three years i've managed to sell a hundred and sixty five thousand pounds worth of stickers the public have been lovely with it and also a lot of uh, businesses they like to uh, put their business on my car and then they put it on their web page it's a win-win for everybody Brilliant. Well, it's certainly a work of art, and it's a work of art that hopefully will do some good as uh, we'll contribute our bit to the effort to beat coronavirus. Stuart, thank you so much for joining us on the JC podcast, and good luck with it. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Memories of motorsport. Richard remembers on the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Richard West has enjoyed a lifetime in motorsport, and this week looks back on a very special moment in his career. The first time he met Tom Walkinshaw. The day I first met Tom Walkinshaw informally was in 1985, at the time I was working for the McLaren Formula One team uh, with Nicky Lauder and Alan Prost. And Tom was a guest at the Williams factory and we were introduced by Frank uh, to him. And I found him at that point a very fascinating character. He. He was incredibly focused when he talked to you. You know, he looked at you in a way that he was talking to you, not at you. And it, it left a great impression on me. And throughout that period, really 85, 86, 87, and even 88, when I you know, was still at McLaren working with Senna and Prost and under Ron Dennis as the sponsorship coordinator at McLaren, 
I saw Tom at various events and various motorsport functions and the Autosport Awards dinner, and we always uh, exchanged views and talked to each other about you know how well McLaren was doing at the time because the team was incredibly dominant then. But towards the, 80, the end of '88, um, even though we'd won 15 out of 16 races at McLaren. This is probably going to sound very difficult to people who've never worked in that environment, but I, I actually was demotivated at the end of November 88. And I, I suppose it was, I was very young, I was ambitious, I was, you know, late 20s, I wanted to, in my own mind, I wanted to be a director of McLaren, and quite clearly I don't think that was going to happen. And I'd received several offers from a number of the leading Formula One teams, and I drove to London to meet several people who remain nameless to protect the guilty. And... Um, I was sitting in a hotel waiting for all these team managers and people to come out and team owners because uh, they'd all been in a London hotel for a FOCA meeting, Formula One Constructors Association meeting with Bernie Eccleston. And Tom came into the reception, sat down and said, oh, hi, you know, how are you? And I said, I'm great. You know, what about yourself? He said, what are you doing here? Are you waiting to see, you know, Bernie or somebody? I said, well, funnily enough, you know, I'm, lo- I'm looking possibly for a, for a new job in, in motorsport. And he asked me why I wanted to leave McLaren and, you know, why I felt that, you know, I could find better elsewhere. And I just said, listen, you know, I'm full of ambition. I'm very hungry for success. Why do you ask? And he said, well, would you come and work for the TWR group? And I said, well, what are you looking for? And he said, well, you know, we've got the Jaguar program. We won the morning in 88. We've got the IMSA team up and running in the States under Tony Dow, which is hugely successful. We need to create a better bridge between the uh, sponsors of the team, Silkcut, Castrol, various others, and Jaguar as a manufacturer, because Jaguar are brilliant at designing and selling cars, but Tom's words, not mine at the time, he said they're not necessarily the best at exploiting sponsorship. And we talked for about 15 minutes, and as the F1 team owners started coming out of this meeting, I made my excuses and, you know, rather strangely sort of left and said, look, I'm sorry, I can't do this meeting. And the following day, Tom invited me down to Kidlington, and that was on the old trading estate where TWR was spread over a number of industrial units. There was the Tom's office was above the engine shop and a number of stores and other functions. And uh, then you had Jaguar Sport under Paul Davis, and of course you had Jaguar Racing with Roger Silman and the rest of the guys. And Tom showed me around the estate, and I was it was so different to Formula One because. It was relatively, and I don't mean this in any way disrespectfully, it was almost cottage industry because at that time, McLaren had the most incredible facility. You know, they'd moved up a gear into this amazing stained glass facility in Woking. And uh, Williams had moved, you know, from their old setup in the centre of Didcot to the place under the power station. And suddenly there was this trading in state environment. And Tom took me up to his office. He, Linda, his secretary, was told not to allow any calls through. We talked for about 45 minutes. I was introduced to Alan Scott, the engine man, who's now a great friend. And I spoke to Tony Dow on the phone and Roger Silman came in. And Tom said, I'll tell you what we'll do. He said, it's very simple. He said, I'd like you to come and join the group. Uh, this was in late December, 88. He said, um, what are you earning? And I told him, he said, well, I'll pay you twice the amount. And he said, what car do you want? I said, well, I'd love a British racing green, um, British racing green, you know, XJ40. And he said, yeah, you only get a 2.9. He said, you can't have a, you know, 3.6 cause you're not that high up the management chain yet. And, um, we shook hands on a deal there and then. And I always remember it. He stood up, shook hands with me, and he said, listen, welcome to the TWR group, you know, and, and to a great future. We've got great plans. 
And as I stood up and shook hands and went to leave the room, he said to me, there's only one thing. He said, you'll have to work twice as hard for double the salary. And I smiled at him and how right he was because Tom was an enormously demanding taskmaster. You know, there's a lot of things said and written about Tom, but I tell you now, he was incredibly loyal to his employees, you know, right the way through the tenure until sadly the group failed as a result of the Arrows debacle in Formula One. And those who knew him well, Martin Brundle, I think, summed it up once. And this is by no means an egotistical statement, but Martin said it at Tom's memorial service down in Gloucester. If you were part of Tom's gang, you knew you were something special. And he didn't suffer fools gladly. He made you work very, very hard. But he was very generous. And I have to say, I look back on it now with immense pride and enjoyment because it was a baptism of fire. I started work on January the 2nd. Seven days later, I was in the States with him, you know, meeting Tony Dow and the IMSA team. I was also at that time responsible for group PR around Tom's garage groups and other things. And 14, 15 hour days were not uncommon. And if the phone rang and Tom said, we're going somewhere, you just dropped everything, packed your suitcase and left. That's how it was. Great guy. I miss him terribly. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Sharing the passion, sharing the knowledge. All your questions answered with the Jaguar model experts. Well, once again, we welcome our resident techie expert, Tom Robinson from Swallows Independent Jaguar. Hiya, Tom. Hi, Wayne. How are you? Very good, thanks. Still busy at Swallows? Yes, we are. Yeah, we're still um, keeping things moving here, um, mainly with essential repairs. Obviously, a lot of the racing stuff, etc., is on hold. So we've been busy with general servicing, cam belts, brakes and maintenance with with all the sort of day-to-day commuters as such. And I know you've been uh, ferrying cars around for people who like key workers and uh, essential trips and that kind of thing to keep people moving when they need to, which has been quite an important part of your work, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're obviously avoiding any sort of personal contact where possible. So we're not doing any drop-offs here on site. Um, we're actually collecting the cars on vans, trailers, etc. Just to anyone that is in that essential work, etc. can still keep their car moving. And, of course, helping people via the medium of the JEC podcast, where, of course, Tom Robinson every week answers all of your technical questions. All you have to do to get a question on the show, by the way, is go to jecpodcast.com, and there you'll find our little voice recorder where you can leave a message to be included on the podcast or, of course, use the contact form as well. And the first question for this week's episode is from our very own James Blackwell. I have a 2009 XF, 3-litre diesel, um, and I need to change the rear brake pads. Is there an easy way to disable the electronic parking brake to just allow me access? So yes, James, there is. It's actually pretty straightforward to do, to be honest with you. Now, when we have the vehicles here in our workshops, we actually set them into a service mode, so the handbrake will not engage at all. But to do this from home, um, it's what you need to do is to simply um, turn the ignition on, um, make sure your foot is on the brake so you don't start the vehicle and just push the lever down. Um, you should then obviously hear the motor engage and the red part brake on the dashboard turn off. Now, you can then turn the ignition off on the car and the handbrake will stay off. So you can then go about the process of obviously fitting the pads. Now, just one thing to make a good point of is once you've fitted the pads, um, just when you turn ignition back on the car, um, before you do that, just make sure you pump the brake pedal up um, so that you get a firm pedal. And then once you've then turned the ignition on, just activate the handbrake on and off a couple of times to calibrate it. 
Brilliant. And one of those jobs that's fairly easy to do at home once you've figured that out. Uh, it keeps you occupied during COVID-19, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It is really straightforward. You do just need a um, caliper windback tool for the XF, um, but it's, it's a really straightforward procedure. Our next question comes from Roger Stamp and is on a slightly older Jaguar, a 1971 Series 3 E-Type Coupe V12 to be precise. And Roger says his dashboard lights are not lighting instruments, including the speedo and the rev counter. What can he look at? Is there any tips for him, Tom? So I believe the original um, Smith gauges have bulb illumination across those. So I straight away would say it's pretty rare for obviously all of these to have failed. Now, some of these vehicles have a dimmer switch, so I'd make sure that's set um, so it's obviously on. Um, now, with the age of these vehicles, it is pretty common for, for sort of fuse issues or poor wiring connections on the back. So I'm afraid it is a case of maybe taking the front panel down and sort of checking all of these che- um, connections against a wiring diagram. That would be where I would be heading first. And that dimmer switch can sometimes be a cause of problems as well, Tom, because they get furred up inside and actually can end up breaking the circuit, can't they? Yeah, absolutely. That would probably be my sort of first bet is that there's an issue there with a the dimmer switch. But um, just check all the connections. As, as, as you said, Wayne, they sort of get a little bit corrosion on the terminals and that can cause that exact issue. Hopefully, Roger, that has given you a pointer as to where to look next in solving that uh, rather tricky problem. Well, on to another Jaguar E-Type for our next question now, which comes from Frank Rowley. Uh, and it's a Series 2, 2 plus 2 fixed head with a 4.2 from 1970. And Frank says, I've removed the starter motor from the car and fitted a Powerlite RAC303 model specified for this vehicle. This is, of course, one of the modern high-torque starter upgrades. Uh, he says it was a straight change without any other wiring alterations to the vehicle. Now Frank finds it will not work. Thinking obviously it was faulty, Frank sent it back to the manufacturer, but they said there was no fault with their unit. So in desperation, Frank's fitted back the old starter motor and has found that that did not work either, although it had worked previously. Uh, Frank says, I'm at a loss to figure out what is wrong as I've not altered or added anything to the system. The only thing that happens is that after the ignition key is allowed to go to rest, after trying to start the motor, the regulator box, the Lucas 4TRY37700, by the way, uh, makes a clicking noise. Any help would be appreciated from a desperate Frank, he says. What do you reckon, Tom? Well, Frank, it sounds like a pretty frustrating issue. So, unfortunately, it is pretty awkward to diagnose without actually seeing the vehicle, but um, the best advice I can give you, really, is to carry out some basic checks. So, firstly, if the vehicle is an auto, it has a switch on the transmission to stop it being started in gear. So, I would definitely check this and make sure it is definitely in park. I'd also then just carry out a really basic check and just make sure you 100% have a fully charged battery. You can check this if you have a use of a multimeter. Now, I would then look at checking all of the connections to the starter motor that you've previously removed. Um, any sort of further checks on this would need the use of a multimeter, but I am more than happy to guide you through some testing procedures and then we can confirm where the wiring issue is or whether it's a solid issue. Now, if you want to do that, Frank, um, the best number to get me on is 01934 750 Okay, well, hopefully Tom can help you out a little bit further if you need it, because next is a slightly more modern Jaguar now, an XJ6 V8 from 1999, the X308, of course. And Martin Seema asks, is the front suspension overhaul, and he wants to do his bushes and shocks, a home job, 
or should I not attempt it? I think he's heard some horror stories, Tom. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. So, um, so yeah, the front suspension overhaul is definitely possible as a home job. Now, it is a little bit um, more difficult, um, but I must stress you do have to be extremely careful um, with the front core springs on these. Um, there is a special tool you have to use to remove this. Now, um, the JEC do um, actually hire this tool. Um, I believe that's through Ken Jenkins. So if you do want to carry this out at home, it is essential um, that you do use that spring tool. But um, once that spring is removed um, using the tool, um, it is absolutely fine to carry out any sort of suspension work and it is relatively straightforward from that. Contact details for Ken Jenkins to hire that tool, Martin, can be found in Jaguar Enthusiast magazine. One of the many benefits, of course, of joining the Jaguar Enthusiast Club and you can loan out that tool to get that job done. Brilliant idea to get all that sorted out while you can and the car's off the road. Well, final question for this episode, and it comes from Roger Wardle, who asks about Space Saver wheels and tyres. And his question is, what size of Space Saver wheel and tyre do I need for my 2010 XKR convertible? And can you suggest a good source of supply, please, Tom? Yeah, sure, no problem. So the Space Saver size for the XKR is actually a 135 8018, which is a bit of an unusual size, um, but one point to definitely make sure is that you do need to double check that it is the orange type, so it will fit over the larger 380mm um, disc and calipers on your XKR, but a couple of suppliers, um, someone like Eurojag or Auto Reserve, they do break these vehicles, so I'm sure they'd be able to help with that. Excellent. Don't forget, of course, you can submit your questions via jcpodcast.com and anything you want answered on the show, we can do for you. There's a little audio recorder on there that you can leave your message on or you can use, of course, the contact form as well. And Tom Robinson will be joining us next week for more of your technical questions answered. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Join the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club now at jec.org.uk SNG Barrett have been trusted by Jaguar enthusiasts around the world for over 30 years so to find out what it takes to create one of the best known Jaguar businesses around on the podcast now Julian Barrett who joins us hi Julian hello tell us about how things are for you during this current and weird situation we find ourselves in how are SNG Barrett coping with it all uh, it's it's certainly weird and it's certainly different, but um, we're we're continuing to trade pretty much as usual as far as the customer is concerned. Um, if you phone up and, and, and place an order with us, our warehouse is operating um, on slightly different shifts, and they're all spaced out um, differently uh, compared to, to normal. But we're still sending products out, and uh, our sales guys are still uh, still manning the phones. They may or may not be fully dressed because they're at home, but um, we're, certainly still, <laughs> we're certainly still operating. Tell us about SNG Barrett then and the story, the history behind it. Where did the business begin all those years ago? Yeah, okay, so we uh, we started uh, back in the late 70s. So it's, it's kind of a little bit difficult to put the exact date on uh, on the on when we started because we were a business that was started by my dad um, in, the, uh, in the garden of our house uh, where I grew up. So my dad was a French teacher, um, but so he had a relative who passed away, left him some money, and with that money he bought himself... Um, uh, he bought himself an E-Type, um, and when it came to repairing that E-Type, he found that parts to uh, to repair it were pretty hard to come by. So what he did was he bought himself a, a, a donor car, 
um, that was uh, that was off the road and uh, repaired his own car with the parts from the donor car and then set about uh, putting some adverts in the Exchange and Mart to sell the remaining pieces of the donor car. Um, and it turned out there was uh, quite a demand, um, and it really started from there. And my mum was the kind of uh, was the business. Uh, the business brains behind it, and my dad was the the, the parts guy, and as a team, they grew from there. It must have been really integral to family life at the time, Julian. Is that where you got the passion from? I suppose you didn't have much choice, did you? <laughs> yeah, I think that uh, I think the integral would be uh, would be a good description of it. I mean, uh, our kit our kitchen table would have to be cleared for uh, for the switches that my dad was putting together while my mum was trying to make the dinner uh, and my sister and I were dragged around uh, yeah dragged around the, uh, the the auto jumbles of Bewley and Stoneley from uh, from from as, as soon as we could walk pretty much well going from putting switches out on a table and traveling around the auto jumbles of the country to where you are now is quite a long journey and I know along that journey uh, that included buying the original OEM parts manufacturer didn't it so how did you get from there to where we are now yeah there's a there's, there's a, a, a number of stages that we've gone through to to get to there we actually started out supplying parts for e-type and then we added um the triumph stag into our range it's not a traditional jec uh, uh material list but you, some of you may be familiar with the triumph stag um and that was where we started and um uh, we sold off the triumph business in the 80s just to focus on jaguar and we expanded from e-type um, across the classic range and, and now we cover both the classic and modern um jaguar uh, part supply um as a, as a company we have grown considerably since uh, since those days and it's a very different beast but hopefully some of that um you know that some of the same dna and passion still remains and tell us about Sovi then. These are the you managed to get all sorts of tooling and parts together when you purchased that company. What that was that must have been a, a critical turning point in the growth. Yes, it was. I mean, we started we we started adding some 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 manufacturing uh, of products early on in our uh, in our growth process, but purchasing a company called Sovi in the 1980s was quite an important springboard for us. They were a, um, a, a small manufacturing company supplying parts into the production line for Jaguar, Rolls-Royce, Aston Martin, Bentley, all of those guys. Um, and uh, we, we took on that company and carried on, um, both carried on what they were doing at that time and expanding the uh, the, the range that, that they offered um, we also were able to pick up a number of the um, a number of the original tools um, that were used on various jaguar um, classic products from 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 some of the uh, from some of the manufacturers in that kind of um, uh, midlands manufacturing heartland um, and um, we're still using some of those tools to to remake the parts today what over the years have you found has been the biggest challenge to Jaguar parts supply for you? Has it been sourcing the original patterns or getting the quality? What has been the toughest thing to overcome? At the moment, the, the, the challenge can be that we can sometimes be a victim of our own success in the Jaguar sphere because there's such good availability now for, for, for products across the classic Jaguar range particularly that um, the, the, the expectation of the customer can be quite high. And even if they're in a 50, 60-year-old car, we can almost all the time get the products that they need for the following day. And it becomes, it becomes unusual when we, we, we can't do it. And so to, to an extent, we can be a victim of our own success because it's, you know, it's not instantaneous to redevelop a product. And there can certainly be challenges that we face from particularly with larger manufacturers where a large manufacturer continues to remake a product, but the volumes become too low in the classic sphere. 
um, that we have to then resource and that can definitely be a challenge for us. Well talk us through the process then where you identify a gap in a market or a product that's no longer available and you've got to turn maybe a kind of rusty example of one that sat on a desk somewhere into a product that you're then able to sell to us the customer now i know you've got a, an in-house r&d at development center now so give us an insight into just the sheer work and effort that goes into bringing a product to market uh, yeah no that's uh, that's that is one of the, uh, the my favorite parts of the business we call it the product design and development team and they're, then they're involved in, in bringing in, in bringing new parts to the market or improving parts that, uh, that are on the market at the moment. So, um, in an ideal world, we'll uh, we'll have a drawing of the the part, the original drawing of the part, um, and we've got a, a large number of those. But even those can sometimes be a challenge because converting something that's two D uh, into something that uh, ends up as a three D product um, that can certainly sometimes be a challenge. I mean, the E Type, for example, was uh, a beautiful car, but kind of hand drawn with a, a pencil sixty years ago. Uh, and trying to make those hand-drawn lines into uh, something uh, manufacturable in the modern world can sometimes be a challenge. Uh, if we haven't got the original drawings, what we'll, uh, what we'll do these days is we use our um, 3D scanning technology. So we'll scan the part um, uh, and then convert it into a CAD drawing. And then what we do from there is we'll, uh, very oftentimes we'll use a 3D printer to print a prototype of the part. Uh, and then we can test it against um, the, the mating parts on the car uh, to ensure that we've got a good fit. Some of the modern technology that we're using now uh, has made a massive difference to the range of parts that we can bring and also the speed at which we can bring the parts to the market um, and it, it really has made a huge difference to us there's been examples where we've built up whole whole um, whole products out of the 3d printer we've recently done the uh, the e-type uh, v12 distributor um, and we've built the whole the whole thing out of the 3d parts to make sure it all moves together properly uh, and as we expect so it's um, it's made a big difference well, of course, you can keep up to date with all of the new innovations coming out of SNG Barrett via the Friday Spotlight email, and we are often featuring new products from them in there. You can sign up to that on the website at jec.org.uk. I suppose you mentioned modern technology and the massive strides have been with manufacturing processes. When we look at some of the older Jaguars and indeed some of the SSs, do you think the future mm -hmm. of keeping those cars on the road is a lot brighter? And now because of those technologies funnily enough i do uh it, because the, the difference that it's made particularly for us is the, is the fact that we can manufacture in lower volumes at a, at a price point that's acceptable for, for for the customer so yes it it's it kind of seems sounds slightly counterintuitive but the modern manufacturing techniques are able to keep some of the really old cars where the volume can be lower um keep them on the road yeah you're now a business that is around the world and you're a business that has gone from fairly humble beginnings to get to that point. What have been some of the challenges that you've met along the way in, in the way the business has grown? <laughs> How long have you got? <laughs> the, um, the, the, we know we're in a very different business to the to the one where the, uh, the car parts on the on the table, um, uh, on the kitchen table before dinner. We've got um, four branches worldwide. The main one here in the UK. Um, then we have one in France, one in Holland, and one in the US. Um, overall, our business is 85% uh, export. We've got about 120 people working for us. Um, so it is a very different proposition to, to what it was all of those years ago. Um, and yeah, that does definitely bring with us its own challenges. One of the challenges, particularly, I think, in the Jaguar um, environment is, the, is that the, the, we've, we've kind of a victim of our own success to a certain extent, because 
people have got a car that's 50, 60 years old and they expect to be able to have everything available uh, uh, the following day kind of thing. So that, that can certainly bring its challenges because sometimes the remanufacture process can be a little bit more involved than we expect or, or a supplier will decide to stop uh, stop producing something when we don't expect it and that can certainly bring its challenges but um i think hopefully we've still managed to keep a number of the uh, the, the a number of the people that have been with us some some from the very start and that i think has helped to keep the same ethos going from 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 when we were in the garden doing it all those years ago anyone who owns a jaguar you can forget because you you get so involved with the scene that how lucky we are to have parts suppliers like you keeping all of our cars on the road but it's only when you go and buy other marks of the similar sort of era that you realize how hard it is to get parts of some of the other cars um we're lucky in that respect but obviously there's always been a lot of conversation around parts quality and how that's changed over the years have you seen those challenges yourselves and, and how have you had to counter that as you've gone through remanufacturing parts yeah what i what i'd say on that is that the the, the a lot has changed in recent years on that side. I think what I would say maybe 10, 15 years ago is that people were pretty much grateful for anything that they could put on their car to keep it going. Uh, but in the classic market, the the values of the cars have gone up quite considerably. And what's being produced from some of the big restorers is is arguably better than whatever came out of the factory in the first place. Um, so to try and keep up um, in in terms of that customer expectation of what we produce has been something that we've been 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 tackling over these 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 recent years. Um, there's still some challenges to be had. That what I would say is that you know the the, the quality of the products that we that we put on these cars is, is way better than it was some years ago. Um, and at SNG Barrett, we, um, we 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 try to to practice what we preach. I drive uh, many miles a year in in our E-Type. I've done the uh, around Britain coastal event twice. Uh, I think our E-Type's been around the coast of Britain twice. We do a, an event at Shelsley Walsh Hill Climb every year, in which we take we allow our customers to drive up and down the hill all day. I think last year it did 90 trips up the uh, up the hill climb course. So we do. Um, we do uh, test our parts and we do live uh, in the same way as our customers uh, do by uh, by driving these cars so we do understand the frustrations when something doesn't work out and we try and um, we try and uh, do all that we can to avoid that despite some of the issues we have with our cars now and then they've got to be more reliable don't you think now than they ever were when they were new <laughs> Yes, I, I would agree with that. I, I, I've often had, I've, I've got somewhere in my, um, in my, in my, in my office here a, 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 a road, some road test uh, uh, info from from E Type, a contemporary road test, and they've become, you know, they, they, some of these cars, particularly the E Type, was was built on a shoestring at the time, and, and reliability wasn't um, wasn't what it was known for. But uh, I, I think one of the challenges these days is that. Some of the some of the ownership profile of some of the classic cars is slightly different. Where some years ago, a classic car owner was keen to get these kind of hands dirty and get under the bonnet of the car at the weekend, and and you know, breaking down by the side of the road. While it wasn't wanted, was kind of part of the story. Whereas we do certainly see more now, where the the classic car can be the the alternative car for somebody that they drive at the weekend and during the week they've got this car where they never open the bonnet it's a modern car and it's you know it's not the kind of thing you can touch yourself and they expect their 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 classic car to to look cool but but to perform faultlessly and that's definitely a challenge to, to live up to that expectation of the customer well of course you're very heavily involved with the jaguar enthusiast club and of all of the 
people involved with the club, we are probably the most passionate people about Jaguars on the planet. Um, why is it important <laughs> for you, though, as a business to be involved with a car club like ourselves? The, the relationship we've had with the JEC over the years has been an extremely important one for us. And um, I've, I've made a point of going to countless of the uh, the, the JEC events uh, myself. It's a, you know, it's a fantastic club you put on, the, I would say, the biggest Jaguar events in, in the world. What you did last year at Blenheim was absolutely fantastic. It was the it was really the event of the year. Um, and, you know, you've pulled off those events year after year. Windsor, a couple of years before that, was was extremely memorable. And it's only really the JEC that can pull off events like that. And as much as we've changed over the years, we and I in particular are still petrol heads and we love these events and we love what what, what we what you guys do so it's um yeah it's just an important an important connection for us to have and and, and just in terms of feedback and in terms as, as, as how we're doing and what we could do differently keeping our close relationship with the clubs is very important well Julian as you talk I can hear the passion about the cars in your voice um <laughs> it, it, is it a challenge sometimes when you're doing it all day for work to keep that fire alive or is it just in your blood it's not a challenge actually i think what what it is for me sometimes is it's a real relief to come back to to the car side of it because you know as as the as the business gets bigger sometimes I, my, my work day can be less involved in the cars than than it used to be because you you know you'll be be dealing with some something that's not related to that maybe warehouse or logistics or a hr related you know issue or day um, and it's always a, a massive relief to, to get back to the to the actual car bit uh, for me. One of my big frustrations during the during the, um, the during this lockdown is that last year I bought a um, uh, an E-Type that I was going to do some racing in, and that was my plan for this year. So uh, one of my big, <laughs> big frustrations is that I won't be able to do that. Most likely, won't be able to do that this year. So no, uh, losing the uh, losing the passion for the for the cars and the mark is not um, is not something I'm worried about. Well, it's been fantastic to have you on the JEC podcast, Julian. And- fantastic to get an insight into one of the best known businesses uh, that supplies Jaguar parts out there so uh, thanks for joining us. Real pleasure Wayne, thank you ever so much and um, stay safe in these uh, challenging times. Join us next week where we'll be in conversation with Graham Searle as he takes us on a journey through time to examine the history behind the Jaguar Enthusiast Club itself. We'll be answering more of your technical questions as well including a fascinating couple of issues for lovers of the V12 engine plus much, much more. Don't forget to get in touch and send us your questions via jcpodcast.com. Use the voice recorder preferably, or of course, you can use the contact form on there as well. See you next week. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jcpodcast.com.